Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Today is a Smart Talk road trip as we are broadcasting live from Lebanon Valley College in Anvil. Specifically, we're in the Susan H. Suzanne H. Arnold Gallery and Zimmerman Recital Hall. Over the next hour, we'll be talking about higher education, especially a liberal arts education, innovations, and the future of higher education, and education in music from an institution renowned for its music curriculum and participation, and a historic letter from President Abraham Lincoln that is now at the Lebanon County Historical Society. Up front, we're happy to be joined by the president of Lebanon Valley College, Dr. Louis Thane. Dr. Thane, thank you very much for having us uh, on the campus of LVC. We are delighted you're here, Scott. And uh, I remember a few years ago when uh, I was on this program and first starting as president, um, one of my hopes and dreams was to have you here at some point, and we are so glad that you and your team uh, have come to Lebanon Valley College. Uh, well, when we you were, you. when you, well, thank you very much. When you were on the program at that time, it was right after you became the president That's of right. Lebanon Valley. So it's a good time for me to ask this question: What's changed in those four years or so? How much time do you have, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so much has changed. Uh, I would say that uh, uh, I, I had a lunch yesterday with a group of faculty and staff, and I had the same question. So it's really interesting. Um, we have these open discussions. We've started so many new uh, programs at the college. Uh, we have uh, uh, added new athletic teams. We've uh, put some new programs in place. Uh, this is a college where change has been uh, uh, rapid. It's a dynamic place. And we've done it partly because we want to be so good at what uh, we do in educating students uh, to go out in the world and. Uh, succeed in their work and uh, make a contribution in their communities. But we've also done so in response to change around us. Uh, we're part of the world. Uh, we know that uh, there's uh, an acceleration of change in the uh, world in which we live. And within higher education itself, that change has been accelerating. Um, there is so much to talk about. Um, and I think that uh, you know, among the things that have changed uh, that I would point to is uh, we have uh, revamped our curriculum, um, and we can talk about that if you want later, to, to really educate students for the 21st uh, century. We have uh, also uh, moved online with our course, with many courses, uh, particularly in the summer. Uh, and I see in the audience our educational technologist who has really worked on course design. Uh, for those online courses. That's a big change for us. You know, they're just your first answer. I have so many questions, but is there pressure? I mean, we want to talk about higher education and Lebanon Valley in particular, but is there pressure on institutions of higher education to evolve, to innovate, that students, their parents, those careers of today and tomorrow that you mentioned, that you have to evolve all the time. Absolutely. Uh, you know, there's good pressure and bad pressure. Uh, the, uh, the truth of the matter is that uh, uh, we're feeling a lot of the good pressure to really expand on our strengths, uh, to, uh, uh, to bring forward affiliate programs with things that we're already strong in. Um, uh, the, the group in music is going to talk about that, I think, um, uh, a little bit later. 
But that's also true in the health professions area. We had a great uh, physical therapy program. It was the only uh, program in the country that was standalone, and now we've developed uh, an exercise science and athletic training program to go with it. Uh, and we're now adding uh, communication sciences and disorders and speech and language pathology. And that will expand, I think, beyond that. The, uh, the, the other side uh, is that um, affordability is really important to uh, our families and to the college. We, you know, the, my charge from the Board of Trustees is to uh, retain the dynamism of the education here and the relevance of it. Uh, but also to make it affordable uh, for families. And so we have increased our financial aid significantly, um, and we've needed to. Uh, and I think that um, uh, even so, our, our students, uh, just about all of them are on some uh, scholarship program, uh, but uh, almost all of them also have to have student loans. So that's, that's in response to uh, change. Mm -hmm. Student loans and... and many private liberal arts colleges, not just in Pennsylvania, but across the country, it's almost essential that uh, there is some financial aid. Uh, but student loans, and I've heard people uh, describe this as the next great bubble, because there are so many students that are coming out of college that are owing, I think the average is like $26,000 here in Pennsylvania. Uh, but I know people personally who owe $100,000 and they're not pre-med or they're not going to medical school. I mean, how, as someone who is the president of a college like this, how much do you think about, okay, what can we do to keep our students from owing a lot of money when they leave Lebanon Valley? Yes, they've gotten a good education, Yes, we think they're ready for the world, but at the same time, we don't want to put them behind the eight ball in what they owe. Well, I think about it every day, um, and uh, I think about it whenever I see our students. I mean, it's a really important uh, issue. Um, I know that the students are, who are here are determined to get an education, and they're making, they and their families are making sacrifices to do that. Um, that's who we are, uh, and uh, I think we're very proud of that. If you look at the statistics, um, uh, the default rate on loans for uh, graduates of Lebanon Valley College is uh, 2%. It's less than 2%. Uh, if you compare that with other colleges and universities, it's, uh, we're at the very top of, uh, of that uh, scale. The reason that uh, the default rate is, uh, uh, on student loans is so low, and in other words, students are paying back their loans and on time uh, being so high, is because, first of all, they're getting jobs. Uh, and secondly, there's character issues that I think are part of the uh, liberal arts education and part of the values at uh, Lebanon Valley College. So I think both have uh, a lot to do with it. From the side of the administration and the board, uh, we have tried to keep our costs low so that we can uh, keep financial aid uh, as high as we possibly can. And just as an example, in the last uh, three years, we've increased financial aid by uh, $10 million. So we've, we've really... Uh, invested a great deal in uh, the affordability of uh, Lebanon Valley College uh, education. We think it's a great investment, and we also think that the students uh, who pay tuition are making a great investment. Even uh, in today's world, the, the greatest return on investment is really from student loans. Uh, the, in a lifetime, uh, the uh, earning power, um, I think the research is uh, definitive on uh, the increased earning power. 
But on those intangibles uh, of uh, return on investment, I think it's very, very high. Uh, I know it's very, very high because we talk to our alumni and there are some alumni here at the, in the audience who will talk about that. So what is your tuition for this year? Well, our tuition this year, you know, I, I use the round figures, 40,000 for tuition, 10,000 for, uh, for fees. Um, so uh, roughly $50,000, um, uh, just over $50,000 uh, with all of everything included. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I know that uh, the majority of students, as you said, uh, they do get some, some financial aid as long as, as well as uh, uh, loans. I want to kind of and I'll bring something out of left field on you. Uh, there is national news. This, it's made national news this week. It made national news during the presidential campaign, but in New York, New York became the first state that uh, free tuition. Now, we're talking maybe apples and oranges here because uh, we're talking about public institutions in New York, and there actually are a lot of strings tied to that free tuition. Uh, this is something that uh, there are other states that offered a whole lot, like California. Uh, Pennsylvania traditionally has not provided uh, as much money as some other states when it comes to aid to uh, students, aid to, although we have FIA, uh, but uh, to the universities, to the colleges th themselves. Uh, Senator Fulmer and uh, Representative Diamond over here, you could... Uh, make a point right now you could lobby if you want to but <laughs> talk about that if you would what they're doing in in new york and whether that is something that uh, can work in pennsylvania and maybe even work in a private university or college setting well i paid close attention to uh what happened in new york and uh uh, and even did so um, in the run-up to the uh, national elections. Uh, free tuition, college tuition, was a plank in the Democratic Party. With Senator Sanders was, was his idea to begin Very with. Very much right? so. Yeah. And um, look, uh, I I can understand the objective, which is that uh, we want to uh, have an educated society and really increase the education levels in our society because we want to remain competitive uh, as a society and and progress in the areas where particularly education uh, pays off in healthcare and some other areas. I, I think that uh, a policy where, you know, government alone um, is uh, responsible for that um, uh, moving forward, I think, I think government has a role in uh, creative incentives for that. I think the other side of it in New York was to reduce student loans. And, and I saw as you were speaking, some of our students uh, regarding free tuition uh, nodding their heads. Wouldn't that be a great idea? I, well, now they're not I, nodding, I, they're I, laughing. I, right? I, can, I, can, I, can, uh, I cannot blame them at all. Um, I, so reducing student loans is also an objective that we all want to work toward. But I think what, what this uh, New York policy ignores and let me say that New York uh, has just slightly more uh, independent colleges and universities than Pennsylvania. Uh, we are the two leading states. What it ignores is the, uh, the public good that comes from uh, independent colleges and universities, uh, the expenditure of time on resources that are already there, uh, the choices that students have, um, the kind of uh, performance that we see from the independent colleges and universities, which outperform the publics. Um, and frankly, uh, an option to really see public-private uh, public, and government partnerships is really the, the, the way to go in the future, as far as I'm concerned. 
I'm, I'm not going to write policy uh, from your uh, from this show, uh, Scott. And <laughs> well, thank you for the invitation. Uh, that's really going to be up to uh, Russ Diamond and uh, Mike Fulmer. Um, but I'll just say that um, uh, New York has, uh, you know, made a, uh, I think, a uh, political decision. Uh, and the real question is, will this really make sense as an educational decision? And, and I think they really needed to think it through a bit more. Um, and uh, frankly, you know, I've, I've gone on the board uh, of uh, the National Association of Independent Colleges and Universities, and I'm specifically on the, uh, uh, one of the policy committees and just beginning that. And I'm, I'm vitally interested in this because the future of higher education and the future of the country are, are so closely tied. Uh, I'd like to see them both do well. Most of the private uh, institutions that you mentioned, I don't know if I say most, many, let me put it that way, uh, are liberal arts colleges. There are some who question in today's economy, in today's world, whether a liberal arts education really makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, there are pros and cons. I know that the, there are people say, well, we should be directing our young people, our students to STEM, science, technology, engineering, math careers, that we need so many of those. And you mentioned healthcare. Obviously, uh, Lebanon Valley has uh, looked at the future and said, okay, this is something we need to do to prepare our students. But what do you say to those who say, well, liberal arts education, that, that that's not something that's preparing our, our students today? Well, there's, there's really no better preparation than a, than a solid foundation and grounding in uh, liberal, the liberal arts. Um, and that's really the, the, the work of the curriculum. Um, this, uh, our college, uh, Lebanon Valley, has always had the liberal arts as the basis for the curriculum. And frankly, that, that, uh, the definition as well as how we realize a liberal arts education has changed over time. Um, but every survey, every research, uh, every bit of research, every survey of uh, CFOs, of, uh, of human resources, uh, uh, heads of human resources and corporations, have really said what they're looking for are those skills that are developed through a liberal arts education. Um, and so those are in communications, um, number one. Collaboration, and the ability to collaborate um, across uh, age and uh, gender and all, all, all kinds of cultural differences as well. Uh, and and problem-solving skills. These are the things that, that you get when you go through disciplines that approach a problem or, or knowledge from different angles. I think, you know, uh, our founders talked about thorough, a thorough and practical education, and they always put practical in there. And I think that goes with our region uh, as well as uh, with the, the Jeffersonian ideal that they were working with at that time. We have a, a number of pre-professional programs that, 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 you, that you mentioned. Um, so on top of this liberal arts foundation, we have built uh, some very, very strong pre-professional programs. And I think that uh, that uh, kind of hybrid approach is really strong, and it's especially strong now, so that uh, you're, you're not limited um, in the, uh, where you can go following that. Uh, times change, uh, people change, um, and industries change. And I think you've got to be ready for that. And that's what liberal arts does for you. So what does the future, and I can't ask the future of higher education because you know, we're talking about thousands of institutions across this country. 
but institutions like Lebanon Valley College, what's the future look like? Well, I was at a uh, gathering in New York uh, recently uh, for the uh, American uh, Talent Initiative, uh, an initiative that's uh, funded through the Bloomberg Philanthropies and uh, works with uh, uh, the Aspen Institute as well and, and some other areas. And this is something that really came about, I think, through my colleague at uh, Franklin and Marshall, Dan Porterfield. Uh, we were there with a number of uh, college presidents uh, representing about 260-some uh, uh, colleges and universities who have uh, graduation rates uh, that are uh, significantly uh, in, oh, in, the, in the very top of the uh, range. And the other criteria is uh, really students who are eligible for Pell Grants um, and first-generation um, uh, college students. And, and I saw recently uh, a demographic study that this, is, this need to continue um, and to be more successful uh, with the education of first-generation students uh, and Pell-eligible students um, is going to continue for quite some time. So the idea that um, families with great wealth uh, are going to be uh, the new customers for higher education um, is, is not the way the, our, our society is going to go. We have got to develop an education that works for uh, students who uh, will have some loans, who are first generation. And um, so it, it means developing uh, programs that uh, will launch them into careers. Mm -hmm. um, and that focus is going to be very much a part of it, Scott. Dr. Lewis Thane is the president of Lebanon Valley College. Dr. Thane, thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, I really enjoyed it, yeah. Scott. Welcome and come back soon. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Lebanon Valley College in Anvil. We are uh, on a Smart Talk road trip. And want to thank uh, Roof Advisory Group for their support of our Smart Talk road trips. We do this about once, maybe even twice a month. We're going to be uh, doing another one uh, coming up uh, at the end of April, April 28th, in fact, uh, to the brand new Museum of the American Revolution in Philadelphia, where we're going to have a bus trip. So if that's something that uh, you'd like to do, uh, get in touch with us at WITF. Most colleges and universities have their specialties, the programs they are strongest in. Say Lebanon Valley College to many people, and music may be one of their first thoughts. Here's a quote from a former LVC music major. There's a fantastic choir, an excellent orchestra, and a great band program. In fact, almost 10% of the student population is in the marching band. There is no shortage of opportunities to perform. Someone is giving a concert or recital on almost an almost nightly basis. That's a direct quote from a former uh, Lebanon Valley music major who just raved about the mu music program and uh, uh, with, with good reason because, as I said, Lebanon Valley has such a great reputation. Joining us to talk about uh, the music program at uh, Lebanon Valley College is Dr. Sharon Davis, Assistant Professor of Music and Director of Music Education. Dr. Matthew R. Poulding, who is the Assistant Professor of Music and Director of Choral Activities, and Tom Stroman, Professor of Music. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for Thank being you. with us Thank today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. All right, Tom Stroman, I'm going to start with you uh, because uh, we, we kind of talked a little bit about it ahead mm -hmm. of time. You said that uh, you've been here a while, so maybe you could uh, address that. But it's kind of a broad question, but why is music so important at Lebanon Valley College? Well, well, first of all, Scott, I'm a product of this institution, okay? I started here in uh, fall of 1970. 
my, my music background, uh, I started when I was six years old. I played the piccolo. Uh, my father, uh, I told him I wanted to play an instrument. It was in the closet. My father was a music teacher. He was a product of this school, too. Really? Yeah, and mother. Yeah. Wow. And son. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, you know, the, the piccolo led to the flute. The flute, uh, seventh grade, my father handed me a saxophone, said I might be bored in band. And so I took up the saxophone. I noticed it had a reed on it, and I noticed the clarinet did, so I added the clarinet. And playing the saxophone took me to the jazz band. In the jazz band, you had to make up... Uh, improvised music, so I had to learn to play music without the notes in front of me, and that led to playing in a rock band. Rock band led to arranging. Um, it was time to come to college. I came here. I had a lot of broad interests. I, I checked out other schools, and uh, they wanted to pigeonhole me, you know, major just on this instrument or just do, do this. My teacher here, Professor Stackow, Professor Frank Stackow, he uh, saw what I wanted to do, and he expanded upon it. Okay, he, he celebrated the fact that I wanted to do these things, which ties into the liberal arts approach to the school. And when I came here, I mean, I, I, just, I just took off in a variety of different directions. And uh, you start writing music, and when you start writing music, you start, uh, you know, next thing you know, you want to record it. And when you record it, uh, then you have to learn about that. And then you come up with an album at the time, record album, and then you have to get into graphic arts with the design, and then you have to get into marketing because you have to sell the thing, you know. <laughs> and, and, and then all these things uh, just, just uh, combine all these areas, which is liberal arts-based. You sound like uh, you just went through the whole curriculum. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, yeah. Kind of. And, and that, was, that was all supported here. And, and if you live in a, a major metropolitan area, uh, any, any one of these aspects that I talked about, from, from playing the piccolo to, to marketing or whatever, is, is a specialty area where you can spend your whole life. In a smaller community like, like here, you end up having to, to do a bunch of these things. So, so it, it, it can become a strength or a weakness depending where you are. But, but it, all, it all grew for me when I was here. You say that you looked at other institutions mm -hmm. uh, and they wanted to pigeonhole you. Were yeah. there any others that offered the kind of opportunities that Lebanon I, Valley did? I, when, when, I, when I looked here and, and saw Professor Stackow, and, uh, I told him I wanted to major in clarinet, and, and that was the instrument I played the least well at the time. And, and he said, well, why do you want to do that? And I explained to him I wanted to get that to, to be as good as the other instruments I played. He said, well, let's get started. You know, and I mean, other places would have looked at me, you know, and in fact, still today, you know, if I, if I would enter a, a college, if there's a good possibility, of, well, well, no, we're not going to let you do that. You know, and he did, so, which was, which was really cool. Dr. Davis, uh, as the director of music education at, at Lebanon Valley, uh, I think Tom did a, a great job of, as I said, kind of describing the curriculum. But uh, you know, what does make this unique? And obviously, when uh, a college gets a reputation like Lebanon Valley has, it's going to attract students like Tom. Um, but what makes your music program unique? And not just the music program. I mean, I, I mentioned in the introduction that there are performances, there are recitals almost every night on campus. I mean, it is a big part yes. of the fabric of this college. Well, I think it, what he, I would just like to start with what he said about how the attitude of the teachers were with what students wanted to do. I think that's the beauty of small colleges. We know our students and we all can, you know, collectively talk about our students in a good way and we we want to see them we want to see them do what they want to do and so we work together to enable that to happen and then you go outside of the lines which is the beauty of it um, and I think 
you know, I've just been here two years and I inherited a very strong um, program and very rich tradition. And like music, which always evolves, good music programs have to continue to evolve. We have to listen to what our students want to do and we have to broaden our programs to meet their needs and for, particularly for music education, to meet the needs of the students that they're going to be going into the classrooms to teach. So for example, we have a, a very strong classical and jazz program and we are looking right now to broaden our programs to popular music pedagogies. In fact, this summer I'm taking a group of undergrads and graduate students to London um, to study the Musical Futures program. Mm -hmm. which And so we're doing a comparative study there. Um, and I was able to see this program about 12 years ago when I lived there and in its pilot in its infancy and now it's really taken hold and it is really working, um, it's a research-based, um, working with uh, the popular music processes. And so we have a traditional pedagogy and we have um, an informal pedagogy. And those things we see happening in music today and our children are coming into our classrooms with that. And so I want our teachers to have those pedagogies well under hand. Um, in addition to that, we are um, inviting back again Little Kids Rock this summer for a wonderful week of music making. And I just want to put a shout out to everyone in Anvil because we want to have a, a concert and invite everyone and bring their guitar and we're going to play together at the end of this week. So I'm really looking forward to having more participatory music happening um, in our world because three quarters of our world, that is what music is about. Everyone participating, not it just being presented to you and you being an outsider, but you being a participant in it. So um, I'm, I'm looking for to broaden those kinds of avenues for music. Well, one of the things I want to talk about with music education uh, during the course of our conversation, and I'm just going to put it on to the side right now, but that has to do with funding for the arts and mm -hmm. um, not just funding, but uh, how K through 12 schools are uh, looking at music, looking at arts education. We'll talk about that in just a moment because it's a, a very important topic. But uh, also joining us is uh, Dr. Matthew are polding? Am I pronouncing it? It's so close. I it's so close. Okay, go ahead. What it's erpolding. 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 Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. That's so okay. I am so sorry. It's all I good. Really, I've heard I really everything. hate it yeah. when uh, I mispronounce someone's name. Oh, it's name. all good. I've gotten all my life. It's fine. Can I call you? <laughs> can I call you Matthew? You can call me Matthew. It's okay. fine. Right. I mean, I don't want to <laughs> disrespect the kids. Call me Doctor E. So, but Matthew. Can is I call fine. you Doctor E? No, Matthew's fine. Okay. All right. So we'd rather go with that. <laughs> yeah. All right. You're the, uh, you're the director of choral activities, mm -hmm. and as I said in the introduction, that uh, almost every night uh, there was something going on yeah. here on, on campus. And uh, yeah, I have to give a shout out. That, that quote that I used was from an alumni of uh, Lebanon Valley, Craig Lane, who worked at WITF for a long time, uh, was a television reporter. But, uh, you know, the very first thing he said to me is, LVC has a fantastic choir. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, like Sharon, I've been here two years, so I inherited a fantastic choir. And um, I think one of the things that makes uh, uh, LVC so special when it comes to music is that music is 
in it of itself a liberal art, and it's a microcosm of the liberal arts education. So, um, you know, it's liberal in the sense that you have to study a lot of things in order to be good at it, and it's art because it's art. And um, I think it's one of the ways and reasons that we can be so innovative, because um, in order to reinvent yourself, you have to get experience from all other places. And so um, part of the reason that the choral program has been so successful is because these students are coming in with so many myriad experiences and so many different well, like disciplines. What? Well, like what? Oh, I mean, the choir is not made up of majors. Mm -hmm. You know, you go to some institutions, and if you're going to be in the auditioned choir, you have to be a music major. And we not only um, allow <laughs> non-music majors to be in our ensembles, we encourage, because it's that enrichment of having other students from other disciplines in our ensembles that we believe as liberal arts professors and as a liberal arts institution that it makes it a more rich and inviting experience. And that's a microcosm of, of what's going on in the world today. We are, that's why, uh, it's why companies are asking for more liberal arts majors, as Dr. Thane said. Um, it's it's how, how we can innovate in our creative problems, our creative thinking skills. So, um, whereas I will firmly tell you right now that if you were to go take a, a saxophone lesson with, with uh, Tom Stroman, you're gonna get a conservatory level of expertise, but the difference is, is that you are also being encouraged to explore other aspects of your humanity that make you a more successful musician um, beyond just the technical aspects of being able to, to, to play those notes or to sing those notes. And I find that that's one of the major reasons why um, our ensembles are able to thrive as much as they do, and our music is so celebrated because we recognize them as a value um, here at the college. Value is one thing, but uh, there are m many students attending this college uh, that their thought is, okay, once I do my four years at Lebanon Valley, hopefully four years, uh, I do my four years at Lebanon Valley that uh, I want to get a job. I have a career. Now, one thing that has changed, and this is just an observation on my part, but there are many more careers in music today that are music related than there used to be if someone just came to the college and said, okay, like Tom, that, uh, you know, he was going to major in a, a certain instrument. And the college has, the, the curriculum has kept up with that. But talk about that, if you would, that there are so many music related careers out there today that you're preparing the students for rather than just, okay, this is a value for my other major, for my career, but this is something actually I want to, this is going to be my career. Who wants to fight over it? Well, I would say um, when I went to college, I was trained classically and I was going to be a, a music teacher. And I loved performing, but I loved teaching the, the performance aspect. And I thought I was going to be a high school choral teacher and that was just the end of the road. And that, that one decision took me to teaching in Germany, took me to teaching in Singapore, and, and took me to a, doing some graduate work in London and teaching in, in Switzerland and having a varied um, career with so many um, interests that took me to research, that took me to writing, that brought me here 
to, to encourage other students. And, and I think that just in teaching alone, there's so many opportunities for music educators. And um, we have some students, last year one of our students um, got a job in Stockholm, Sweden, and he's teaching choral music there. Mm. So it, there's, there's, a, there's a huge world out there, and that's one of the things that we, we can invite here in our college because we have so many study abroad programs. So we, we want our students to see that there's a big world and that there's more than one kind of job you can have. Yeah, and, and to kind of go off of that too, as the world evolves and, and as the world becomes uh, more tech savvy and whatnot, you know, there is now scoring for video games. It might feel like in some way, or scoring for apps or scoring for um, uh, media in such way or, or working in media, recording. We have a fantastic uh, audio music production program. And that's, again, we've, we've changed with the times. We've, we've seen the writing on the wall and seen the way that the world is changing. And I think able to do so because we are so in tune with, with things beyond our discipline. But, um, but it's not just the stodgy old um, way of doing things uh, as, far as, as far as making music. And there's just so many, so many new aspects of, of music. We are music. We're all music consumers, whether we like it or not. And uh, we, are, we are bombarded by it. We, and people are making that. People are talking about it. People are interacting with it. And there's just always an opportunity to do so. Uh, just a little anecdote, too. I, I'll never forget um, uh, going into a doctor's office when I was 17 or so. And it was a graduate from my alma mater back in uh, Iowa. And uh, I found out that he, he's you know, a practicing physician. And he, his BA was in music. And then, it, so that's, I thought that was really interesting. And then come to find out a few years later that um, the most commonly accepted music, or the most commonly accepted major in a medical school is music major. Hmm. And so the idea that, that this, this study of ours can really cross over into, into other disciplines is really, is really powerful. Yeah, you'd think that uh, doctor's offices would have better music then. You well, uh, <laughs> that's great. But, but Tom, Tom, another. Yeah, I, I thought that uh, Matthew did a, a great job of describing. That's exactly what I was thinking about of, of some of the careers. But here, even in Central Pennsylvania, Claire Brothers mm -hmm. in Lidditz, uh, you know, where we have some really some of the the world's uh, best, well-known most popular, most successful bands coming to for practice to prepare for their, their tours. I mean, all the things that Matthew described as far as technology and all those things, I mean, that's, that's kind of like a, it would seem like a great place to go to, to learn, to even be educated even more. Sure. Yeah, well, Claire Budgets is internationally known, one of the best sound companies in the, and it's more than sound now. It's lighting and it's staging and everything else for acts. But you take, you take a simple song, okay? That simple song, somebody had to write it. Somebody has to perform it. Uh, if it if it goes past that, it gets it gets recorded. Uh, somebody has to record it. Somebody has to master it. Somebody has to package it. Somebody has to sell it. Uh, somebody to sell it. Somebody has to market it, uh, and so on and so forth. And every one of these steps along the way is an avenue for someone to be employed in the music business. And it's, uh, I mean, it, it, anything, you know. Yeah. To kind of dovetail off of that, too, somebody has to buy it. Somebody has to buy and, it. And music education is about informing a consumer as well. It's not just necessarily, um, all of us going into music education weren't thinking we were all going to train the next 
group of teachers, we were all, when we went into that middle school or that high school, we're teaching kids music because every single person interfaces with music. So yeah, those are interested in the, in the field. Um, there's, no, there's never been a better time to get a music job. There are just so many. But at the same time, uh, more educated uh, students on music, they tend to be more discerning and they tend to be able to pick out things more and they, they buy more. Yeah. That's, that's one of the, the beauties of music is because music teaches that there's more than one answer to a question. Oh, and so much in our, in our teaching in schools and, and testing is deriving at that answer. I mean, think about how many ways there are to get to the number eight. <laughs> there's infinite numbers of ways to get to the number eight and you're still getting to the number eight. <laughs> but in the arts, it teaches perceptions, it teaches judgments, it teaches nuance, and that changing one of those parts changes the whole. And, and then you bring yourself to that change and that perception, which affects your identity, which is, you know, brings in the emotional and uh, aspects of that. So that is, that is the big, broad, Thing that it, of music you've teaching. Kind of, you kind of anticipated my next question, but I'll kind of end our discussion on this. I mentioned earlier about uh, the arts, music, the arts overall. Uh, there are many schools across this country, public schools in particular, that have cut their uh, their arts programs uh, <clears throat> in the. The, the federal budget that has been proposed by the Trump administration would cut, cut out the complete funding for the national humanity for the arts. I, I think you partially answered this question, but why is this so important? You impoverish a nation when you, when you take away the arts because you're only educating half the person. Music is, is, is global in your brain. It's not just one side of your brain. It affects all of your brain, and it, it, it enables insights into other areas. It enables imagination, that which maybe can be. Um, and that, you know, as, as Matthew already said about critical thinking, this is what our schools are asking us to do. And when you take away the arts, I don't think you're going to see any test scores getting higher one bit. I think you will continue to see decline. We need to educate the whole person and, and imagination, creativity, all of the arts are poor, a big part of that. Whether or not STEM works, um, STEAM with the yes, arts works absolutely. better. Absolutely. And um, and it, that's just there's tons of data to back up the fact that music and the arts enrich the other disciplines in a way that no other no other um, discipline does. And the the, the the other research shows that people want it. People overwhelmingly say that they don't want to cut the arts in their schools. They value the importance of it. They value increasing the funding for it. So if it, if it works, if it's not that expensive, really in the grand scheme of things, and it makes everything better, not only as far as other disciplines, but it makes the whole student better, it's kind of a no-brainer. I want to thank all three of you for being with us today. We need more time. We have a yeah. lot to talk about, but <laughs> thank, you. thank you for being with us thank today. Thank you so much. Thank you. thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Lebanon Valley College. It is a Smart Talk road trip. And before I go any further, I want to thank 
roof advisory group that uh, supports our Smart Talk road trips. We do this about uh, once a month, maybe twice a month, but uh, just the kind of conversation we've had here, it's great to be able to, to come out and uh, talk to people uh, face-to-face. You know, I'm in a studio every day, and uh, I enjoy that experience, but coming out and having an opportunity to talk to everyone face-to-face. And by the way, you can ask a question here if you would like. We have a microphone set up. I'm talking to our audience here. If you have a question here in the next 15 minutes or so, just step right up to the microphone and, uh, and ask your question, and we'd be happy to, a- happy to answer it. Abraham Lincoln is probably America's greatest president for several different reasons. As a result, anything Lincoln-related, something that he touched or wrote, is valuable to historians and collectors. Recently, a letter signed by Lincoln that was sent to Lebanon County industrialist George Dawson Coleman was donated to the Lebanon County Historical Society. It's a fascinating story. Joining us to tell that story is Adam Bentz, who is archivist and librarian at the Lebanon County Historical Society. Mr. Bentz, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Also, Rick Abel, who contributed the letter from Lincoln to the Lebanon County Historical Society. And uh, you may know Rick Abel from his television commercials, Abel and Son, Roofing and siding, and uh, yeah, you've really been advertising a lot lately. I noticed that you even have your names on the roof. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> a, a new product this year. And again, if you have a question, uh, you know, stand right up to the microphone and, and ask that question. All right, Abraham Lincoln, as I said, anything Lincoln related is valuable, and people want to be around it, want to learn more about it. There's a fascination with with Lincoln for a lot of different reasons. Let's kind of go chronologically here. Uh, And Adam, maybe I'll start with you because even though Rick contributed the letter, let's go back to where it was found, how it got to Lebanon County. Then we can talk to Rick about, yeah, he acquired it. And then we can talk about uh, Coleman too. So my, my first question is, when was this found? Where was it? How was it found? Uh, Well, the letter was found in 1961 um, during the demolition of George Dawson Coleman's mansion, which was located in Coleman's Park, uh, Coleman's Memorial Park, which is in uh, the northern north side of the city of Lebanon. And uh, there are a lot of reasons why the city decided, the city had acquired the property uh, from the family, and they decided it was no longer financially possible for them to maintain the building. So... In uh, 1960 or 1961, they contracted with a man named Harold Moody, who ultimately did the demolition of the building. And during the demolition, they were working in the library, and um, they tore apart some of the bookshelves and realized that there was this large steel door leading into a pretty large-sized vault. And they didn't have any keys for it. Nobody knew how to get in, so ultimately they they had to bust their way into the vault. And they found a number of different papers, um, including this letter, which, which is uh, basically a commission appointing George Dawson Coleman to uh, be a commissioner for an industrial exposition in London for 1862. Can I stop for just one moment? Sure. Because probably everyone has dreamed of this or can imagine that discovery. You're looking in a, in a, you're looking in a safe. And you find all these papers. You find one signed by Abraham Lincoln. I mean, we've all had that, that fantasy of going to a yard sale and finding the Declaration right. of Independence, an original copy on the back. That's amazing. Right. 
absolutely. I mean, I, I just can't imagine what the reaction would have been. And, and the fascinating thing for me, I mean, people love, people love anniversaries. Um, I used to be a Civil War reenactor, and the biggest reenactments were always like the 25th, the 50th, the 100th, you know, whenever it's right, that, that, right. that perfect number. number. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was found in 1961. It was signed in 1861. So now it, it, had not been, it hadn't been hidden for 100 years, but it had been hidden for several decades. Um, and it was just, I mean, you know, 1961 was uh, a big time in the, United St- in, in the country's history for a variety of reasons, but it was the anniversary, the uh, centennial of the Civil War. So um, it, I can't imagine what it was like. And, you know, the Moody's, the Moody family, uh, Harold and his wife, were, were ecstatic that they found it in their pictures in the newspaper of them looking at it in front of the fireplace in the library before they tore it down. Um, and... Uh, of course, there was an attempt, there was a desire to keep it locally, uh, but ultimately that didn't work out. So what happened to it over the years before? I'm going to get to Rick in just a moment, sure. how um, he acquired it. Mm-hmm. Well, basically, the contract, which, uh, which I, I think, from what I've been led to believe, the city was not very happy with and <laughs> when they discovered the letter, the contract specified that Mr. Moody could sell whatever he found during the demolition, sort of as recompense, partial recompense for what he had done. And... Um, so he found this letter, which is an essential part of Coleman family history, a big part of Lebanon County history, uh, for some reasons that I, I can elaborate on, um, because of what George Dawson did specifically for the county. And, um, but it, it went to auction, and it passed through a number of private collectors' hands um, before ultimately coming to us through, uh, through Mr. Abel. All right, so, so Rick, let's talk about uh, how did you find it? And, okay, it is Lincoln, but why were you interested? Okay, uh, well, I, I was made aware of the letter uh, through a mutual friend uh, from an um, uh, antique collector who sort of fell upon some hard times in real estate investments and everything. And finally, I mean, he was trying to sell it for over a year. And finally, he came up with and made me a godfather offer, basically an offer I couldn't refuse. And it was a, a very advantageous outweigh. I said, okay, you know what? I believe, believe we can do something here. And I acquired it, and uh, that's maybe about two years ago, and I owned it for a little over a year as such. And, uh, well, that's how I came across it. Mm-hmm. So are you uh, someone who uh, is a big Lincoln fan, if you will, or is it just that it was antique? And, of course, with Lincoln, you knew it was valuable. Well, yeah, well, and there was a tie-in to the area. And Lebanon was a, was a big deal. No, I, personally, uh, I'm not a, a Lincoln collector nor a paper collector, so to speak, more Civil War uh, firearms in a sense. But anyway, uh, so anyway, I, I acquired it, and it was, a, you know, oh, geez, a Lincoln signed. I actually had a, a general's commission from Columbia, General Thomas Welsh, signed by Abraham Lincoln also. Um, but that, that meant a little bit more to me here. But this here and the tie-in to Lebanon, uh, just, it, it really took my eye. So, the the letter itself does it is it all is the letter written by Lincoln or is it just signed by Lincoln? It's just signed by Lincoln. It's just signed. Yeah, yes. I didn't think the president sat down and wrote out a whole letter, but you know, back in those days, I didn't well, know. He would come in in the morning. There'd be a stack of letters to sign, and early date of eighteen sixty one, like that, he full he he would sign his full name, Abraham Lincoln. When it got to sixty three and everything, he would sign it A Lincoln. So at least he got the full signature. Yeah, there. I was gonna say most most signatures I've seen with Lincoln, it does say A A Lincoln. Yeah. So this has the full Abraham Lincoln signature yes. on it. Yes. So. Okay, you had it. You said this like two years ago. Correct. Uh, 
Why did you hold on to it? Why did you decide to uh, go to the Lebanon County uh, Historical Society? Well, two reasons. Uh, well, maybe more, but anyway. Uh, okay, it's great to look at on my wall, but this this just had more meaning to, to a, 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 an area, Lebanon County. Okay, and in fact, with the letter, there was a newspaper article when it sold for auction at $18,000 uh, in 2001. Okay, and the Lebanon Daily News had an editorial, please can't somebody, you know, come get the money together, raise the money, keep this very, very influential, valuable document, Lebanon history in the area. And I'm a firm believer of historical artifacts should go where they belong as, as such. I mean, we are only stewards in our lifetimes of these things, and then they get moved on, and they get thrown to the four winds and everything. This thing could have ended up anywhere uh, in an auction in Christie's in New York City or whatever. And uh, that said, it was the 25th anniversary of my company. In 1992, I started Avon Sunroofing and Siding, and my company would not, I don't think, have gotten off the ground if it wasn't for the support of the people from Lebanon County. And I said, you know what? I think it's time for a little gift back. And that is where this all tied wow, that, in. And I approached is, Adam. That is a great story. I mean, Adam, you don't have a letter signed by Abraham Lincoln showing up at your doorstep every day. No, not every day. No, <laughs> no not even every week. So. <laughs> not even every week. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, what was your thought when, uh, when, when Rick came to you and well, said, <laughs> Well, we, we had been talking about it for uh, a large part of last year, I think, um, originally. Um, Rick wanted asked us if we could put it on display, and uh, and that ultimately didn't work out for security reasons. We didn't want to take responsibility, you know, for something like this uh, unless we had ownership. And then eventually he contacted me in the fall and said, "Well, I've been thinking about it," and and I said, "Oh, well, uh, you know, yes, obviously, you know, uh, without question, we'd like to take it. So we'd be very honored to take it." Um, and especially because of our mission in general, uh, it, it just worked out really, really well. And um, So it's on display at the Historical Society. When can correct. someone yes. come in and see it in your hours? Or? Well, um, it, <laughs> I like to say this because, because, uh, because I oversee the archives. It, it, it is part of the archives. I accessioned it as part of the archives, but it's on display in our museum. So um, anyone can see it um, as part of the normal tour that we run, which is a guided tour. Um, we have regularly scheduled open tours every Saturday at 11 a.m. Uh, the standard charge for that is $6 per person. We also can do tours by appointment. Um, we don't have a large group of tour guides. Incidentally, if anyone in the listening area is interested in being a museum tour guide, uh, here's a quick plug for that. Um, but. But uh, we do schedule tours at other times, especially for large groups. Uh, we like to schedule those in advance to know that we have proper uh, volunteers in place to lead the tours. Well, I'm going to have to stop in because I am a Lincoln guy. Okay. and uh, <laughs> Not a collector, but still, like you, Rick, Civil War and the, that era in Lincoln. But uh, a, a fascinating story. I want to thank both of you for being with us today. And uh, Rick, you're to be congratulated and you. uh, for your generosity. And uh, I know, Adam, that you're being congratulated for you know, just putting us on display and uh, maintaining Lebanon County history. Thank you very much for being with us.
us today. Thank you for having us both on. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, pesticides and growing is just one portion of the program. Our next Smart Talk road trip will be to the Museum of the American Revolution in Philadelphia, April 28th. In fact, there will be a bus trip to the museum, uh, and the museum opens that week. The museum opens on April 24th. It's right down there in old si- this old, old city area of Philadelphia, Independence Hall, the Constitution Center, all right there. Go to WYTF.org to get on our bus trip. Thank you very much, and we say goodbye from Lebanon Valley College.